Hi, and welcome to Health, Wealth and the Pursuit of Happiness, a podcast that will empower you to live a more inspired life and find real freedom. Each episode, Mark Dale Mazer and Aries Jimenez discuss best life practices, covering topics ranging from health and well-being, to true wealth and our relationship to money, to understanding what real freedom and happiness really is. They provide tools and a system for helping you live a balanced, authentic life in complete harmony with your mind, body and soul. Greetings and salutations to all of our beloved listeners in podcast land. Aries and I are very excited to bring to you a guest from right in our backyard, Marion Moss Hubbard. Marion is the founder of Heroic Journey Consulting. She has a master's and a PhD in transpersonal psychology and consciousness studies and a Bachelor of Science with honors in advertising communication. So she is very well-rounded. Her thing is this heroic journey consulting. And what it's really all about for her is helping people really look at their life in the context and the framework of a heroic journey and how that can really help them transform and evolve their own consciousness and the awareness of their life and why they're here and what that's all about. And so we thought it'd be a really interesting dive into this particular kind of work and what Marion's personal heroic journey is as a way of kind of modeling this for us. And so with that, I bring to you Marion Moss Hubbard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. It's really great to be here today. Yeah. Well, we consider this one of our more special interviews. Marion and I met at a recent conference here in San Diego called Visionary Business Live. It's run by a guy out of Eugene, Oregon called Ryan Eliason. And what he brings to the world is helping change makers actually bring their work to the world and not starve doing it. And so Mary and I signed up for that. Aries joined us as well for a day, but I met Marion in a little exercise that we did the evening of the first day. And in the conversation we were sharing, standing in a little circle, I immediately knew this woman and I are on the same wavelength here when it comes to evolutionary consciousness and growth and greater awareness of who we are and why we're here. So couldn't wait to bring her on. I guess the best place to start, Marion, is tell us a little bit about your heroic journey, where it all started for you. We'll let it unfold from there. Sounds great. Well, my heroic journey unfolded, I'm going to say, not right at the beginning of my life. I'm going to go back and pick up those pieces, but I'm going to start kind of in my early 20s. And that's when I was dating a guy who I had dated in college, and we had been there, been together for about five years. And after I graduated and moved up to Dallas, where he was, to be with him, I really wanted to take our relationship to the next level. And it became clear that he really didn't want to get married. And that was kind of something that was very disappointing to me because I loved him dearly. But I also realized that if it wasn't meant to be, I needed to go a different direction. So... It was shortly after that that, you know, as synchronicities happen, that a good friend of mine met a man who she said, I think you might be interested in him. He lives in Dallas. He's not too far away from where you live. 
And I think that you might find it very interesting to get together with him and get to know him. So we got together and we set up a first date. And this is, you know, before all of the apps for setting up dates and finding out about one another that much online. So that's about how much information I had about him. And so we had a first date and I found out that he was a psychologist in private practice. And I felt like I could really open up to him. He was very charming. We had a really good connection right away. And very quickly, our relationship evolved. And within about, actually, it was kind of a whirlwind romance. We said it was like Doris Day and Rock Hudson in the old romance movies of the 1950s. And we just were sort of, we were all in love and we were we decided within six weeks that we were going to get married. And six weeks later, we were married. Wow. Yes. So it was very quick. And very soon after that, we were with some friends. And he was asking her some really in-depth questions. We were just having drinks and things. And I realized he was getting really drunk. And he began to be very, I felt verbally abusive with her about some things that were really particularly troublesome in her life. So I asked him to back off. I said, hey, back off. That's not really good to do. And he turned on me. It felt like a wild, vicious animal in a way. And it was really shocking to me because I didn't ever know this side of him. So I felt really, I was just totally rattled by this. It's like, who is this person I've married? And I realized, oh my gosh, I didn't really know this person very well before we got married. There's a reason that they have, they say should people should court for a long period of time <laughs> through about a year or so. So you see people in all different seasons. And yet I felt like I heard in my head the story of my mom and also my grandmother, which who always told about, you made your bed, now lie in it. I know that one well from mm-hmm. my own dad. Yes. So I, you know, as hard as it was, I felt like I really couldn't talk to anybody about it because it was so shocking that I didn't really want to say what was really going on with me. And so it really sent me into a really deep hole. And from that, I started doing a lot of introspection. And I started really trying to understand about what was going on, because I really didn't have a clue. And I felt a little at a disadvantage because my ex-husband, who is now an ex, but at the time, he, he didn't, he was a psychologist. And I felt like he almost like knew more than I did from a psychological perspective and was actually using some of the psychological things that he knew. In some ways, I felt like it was like really going counter to what I what I knew about myself. Anyway, it feel, felt to me, I just needed to really explore a lot and learn as much as I could. And I went into personal therapy. One of the things about a therapist is they're always in therapy, which is was helpful. We went into marriage counseling. I was in individual counseling. I had a, one of the therapists who said that she thought I should go to Al-Anon, so I did that. I learned all about family of origin issues, about, oh my gosh, how some of the things that were playing out in our relationship that had been very unconscious for me were things that had started in my childhood. So I started delving back into my childhood and realizing some of the similarities of the things that I had repeated in patterns that were very dysfunctional, and that it wasn't just him that was dysfunctional, it was me also, and how those things were being played out on a day-to-day basis in our interactions. So despite all the work I was doing internally, it felt like we were spiraling downward, and it got into a lot of really big verbal abuse and then physical abuse. And at that time, I was just, I felt really lost. It was my self-esteem was at an all-time low. I was crying at work. I just felt 
in the relationship like I was like a caged animal. And I really kind of cut myself off from friendships because I didn't really want to tell people. I was kind of embarrassed. You know, here was somebody who was, you know, educated person, came from, you know, background that I should, I felt like I should have known better. And I was very embarrassed and ashamed that I had let myself fall into such a difficult state. But I really thought for a while there, there was something really fundamentally wrong with me. And so I really did a deeper dive with, I was lucky to have one really good therapist who helped me really rebuild my self-esteem, get clear about what some of the other underlying issues were, that it wasn't all me, that it took two to tango, all those kind of things that I started realizing, hey, wait a minute, this isn't my issue. So I started feeling like I was kind of sorting the laundry. You know, it's kind of like, this is my issue, this is your issue, oh, this one's our issue together. And it became clear to me that as I continued to grow, that the growth wasn't continuing to happen and, excuse me, wasn't continuing to happen and it was actually spiraling downward so much so that I knew that I needed to leave. But I still had that inner thing saying, you you made a commitment. It's a lifetime commitment. And it began to feel like a sentence rather than a lifetime commitment to growth. And so one night in, I was in meditation and I just was having such a difficult time. And I felt like I had an image come up of me being like a clinging to a craggy rock face. And, you know, my hands were bleeding and I needed to let go. But whenever I looked down below, I just saw sharp rocks that I was going to, if I let go, I was going to impale myself on rocks below. And so I was caught in this terrible downward spin of dilemma of not knowing what to do and feeling more and more stressed about it. And then somewhere in that meditation, I felt like I heard a really clear internal voice say, you can do this. What if you have fluffy pillows under you? And what if it's not sharp rocks below? And as soon as I got that image, it's like, oh my gosh, that was a transformational moment because I didn't realize that I even had another option. I kept thinking that I had to do either or, that it couldn't be both, that I could have something different than what I had been envisioning. And as soon as I got that image, I just saw myself like let go, fall backwards, fall into this big pile of fluffy pillows and feel the comfort and the relaxation and the inner peace around all of that. And that was the moment that I think on hindsight now that I realized I was really ready to go. I was ready to leave the relationship. I felt like this was a chance for me to finally come to terms with the fact that it takes two to, to really grow in a relationship and trust. And there had been too much trust broken at that point. And that I had actually, I had to be honest with myself that I think I just selected wrong. I hadn't made a good selection because I hadn't done it very consciously. I had done it unconsciously. And so I kind of vowed to myself I would be as conscious as possible from that point forward. I left the relationship. I actually ended up leaving my job. I think my family kind of thought I had gone off the deep end. And I actually said, and swimming just fine, thank you. <laughs> because, because I did feel like it was really the beginning of my life where I really started to soar. And I had a lot of baggage that I actually had to let go of. I almost felt like it was a huge clearing process. Clear away, clear away. Wait a minute, this isn't true. Because I, I think that when I had first gotten into the relationship with him, I had believed his fantasy and my own fantasy. I'd gotten into a fantasy and I had ignored my own perceptions. I kept shoving my own perceptions deeper and deeper away until they were so buried. I wasn't sure the difference between him and me. And so a lot of this in my being on my own was having to sort out, well, who am I? What am I about? What's the truth for me? 
And, you know, I just felt like it was just a total internal exploration that I did for many years. But that starting point, when I almost went on my big vision quest, I took off in the car, went from Texas to Sedona, Arizona, spent six weeks, incredible place to do six weeks as a sabbatical, camped out of my car. I moteled it a few times. I went on to campgrounds, but I just went on hikes, did a lot of personal looking at what my issues were. I used the Louise Hay book. She had all the Heal Your Life, and that was so meaningful to me. So I did a lot of that work. And then I ended up moving up to Seattle, and I had met someone who was actually I'd worked with, and he his name is Richard, and he worked at the Washington Attorney General's office. I had left the Texas Attorney General's office, and I had met him at conferences. But I decided that he was really the person I wanted to be with. So I ended up moving up to Seattle, went without a job. I just went and I thought, well, I know I picked badly last time, but somehow this feels very different. Because I think the difference was, is when I got together with my first husband, I was getting together to do psychological work. But this was a deep spiritual connection that I had with Richard. And we got together. We've been together now for over 30 years. We married in there and we just have had such an amazing time of spiraling one another up. And I think it's because I did all that deep inner work and really recovered parts of myself from my childhood and started living more consciously, giving up the unconscious scripts that I had been living by. And that has really ultimately led to my work that I'm doing in the world right now. You know, my mission is to help individuals organizations and global transformation to help everybody go through that global that transformational process starting with myself and I had to do it from inside out and I'm continuing to do that I think I will to the rest till the day I die wow good beginning <laughs> thanks for sharing that mm-hmm. I have a couple questions if I may right sure. off of at least this story in your 20s and kind of moving through that So when you came to the point where you needed to, let's say, do a sabbatical of sorts, what was the tipping point there for you? Like what was happening internally in which you decided, A, I need the sabbatical, B, I was going to do it in Sedona. How did you get from Texas to Sedona internally? (laughs) Well, I had been following the work of Peace Pilgrim for quite a while, and I don't know if you know Peace Pilgrim, but she is someone who... Later in life, she never really said what age she was, and she didn't ever say what her name was, but she decided to relinquish everything, all of her possessions, and walk 25,000 miles for peace. And she took off with a tunic, wearing a tunic. She had a comb in her pocket, a toothbrush, a pen, and a piece of and paper, and running shoes. And this is before you had bottled water even, and she just took off and walked. And she... It was inspiring to me because she decided to just really remove all of the external things from the material world and really to take that deep dive into the spiritual realm. So you were modeling her. In my own way. Obviously, I did it with a a little more comforts around me with a car and a futon in the back and food in the car. But that was my inspiration. And did you do this by yourself, Marion? I did. And that's what was very concerning to my family and friends because I had just left my relationship. And I, I was also kind of getting to the end of a place in my career where I knew I needed to make some change. I had kind of gone as far as I could in that position. It felt to me I was getting that real urge to get out and do something different. I'd been with the attorney general's office as a consumer fraud investigator for eight years. And I had thought originally that that was going to be the place I 
you know, I stayed in for the rest of my life. I loved the work. And I really had a hard time when I first decided to leave. When I, well, here's, here's what happened. I was working and I had just left my husband and I was living by myself. And I was out for a walk and I was going like, what is it that I am supposed to do next? And I felt a very clear message once again in my head. It felt actually more like Peace Pilgrim speaking to me, saying, quit your job, travel, and move to Seattle. Six weeks later, I left my job. There must be something with six weeks. Six weeks later, I left my job. I got rid of tons and tons of things. I had gotten rid of a lot in the process of the divorce and splitting up, but I packed a few things in my parents' basement. They lived in San Marcos, Texas, and I took off in the car. And this is before cell phones. So my dad made me promise. Well, he was a good Boy Scout. He, he made me, he showed me how to do knots and how to cook and camp out and how to tell poisonous mushrooms from, you know, non-poisonous and, and built a little awning for my car and got me a lantern and told me all the camping things that I needed to know. And I promised him I'd call him once a week to let him know I was alive and took off. So taking off on this sabbatical, I've heard of other people take sabbaticals and and my my understanding of it is you kind of you take time away from kind of your your daily routine in life, right? What did a typical day look like for you while you're on the sabbatical? To me, I'm kind of interested in knowing that. Well, I would get up in the mornings and I would usually go for a little hike because I'd usually be in some beautiful scenery, so I'd go for a hike. I would put my camp stove out. I remember being, I don't know if you know Sedona, but there is a great place, Cathedral Rock, that is just an absolutely gorgeous place. And I remember being on some picnic tables. I just had my little camp stove, and I'd make my breakfast. And there were some people that were in a caravan of, you know, it's, it's interesting. When you kind of get into that world, it's a whole different group of people. You're traveling They're kind of being vagabonds, looking for what they want to do. This one group was traveling in RVs. I think they were like, you know, little RVs all together in a caravan. And they were going to go build churches. And they were going around the country in the good weather. They they lived in the northern climate, and they were down south, and they were building churches along the way. And this one woman came up, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm cooking my breakfast in my kitchen. I said, come to my kitchen, and I'll cook breakfast for you. And it was just, I started realizing, it's like, oh my gosh, what an amazing thing to have this beauty of the earth all around me. And I had always been somebody who was pretty much an indoor kid. I didn't really spend much time outside. So I think that was a particular shock to the family. It's like, you're going to camp out. You don't even know about camping. You don't even like it. But I did. And I enjoyed it. And I actually did things that I had never thought to do before. Like one day I saw an anthill and I thought, you know, I've never taken the time to really watch ants except when I had my little, you know, little ant farm when I was a little kid. And I'm going to just sit here all day and look at the ants. And I did. And amazing things came from watching what they did, which was so purposeful and so organized and so collaborative. And it just inspired me to think in terms of the small things and the larger picture of things and just sort of blending all of that together and realizing it's all just one big piece. Did you address why you went to Sedona in that whole thing? Did I miss that? Maybe not. My then boyfriend, Richard, who's now my husband, he and I had met in Sedona before I left my job. 
And we had been wanting to kind of go there because we'd heard it was a really spiritual place and we wanted to kind of explore it. So he and I went there together. He was still working. And so he took a vacation and we met in Phoenix and drove up to Sedona and spent about a week together and he had to go back to work. And I took him back to the airport and came back to Sedona and just decided that that was where I really wanted to spend a lot of my time. I ended up going later to Four Corners area and visiting friends in Colorado and doing some other things and going to New Mexico along the way before I ended up back in Texas to get my things and move up to Seattle. But that's how I ended up with Sedona. Okay. And so the Seattle was really just based on where you met your current husband. Yes. And I said to him, I said, I'm so glad that you lived in Seattle, a beautiful place. If you'd said you lived in Duluth, Minnesota, I don't know if I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong no, with Duluth. I'm not, I'm I'm in Duluth, but it's cold. It can and, be cold. Well, Seattle was cold too. Well, yeah, different kind of cold. <laughs> but a different cold. It was certainly beautiful. I love Seattle. It was a great place to be. But it came a certain point when I said to Richard, I said, I love you dearly, but I have to get out of Seattle. It's too cold for me. We have to move south. I mean, I have to move south. I hope you come with me. Luckily, he did. (laughs) (laughs) So the last question I have in this little part of your journey, how would you describe yourself going into Sedona? How would you describe yourself coming out of Sedona? Oh, wow. When I, even as I was on the way to Sedona and traveling by myself, I just felt like I was, I was just letting go of so much. And I was really doing a lot of inner exploration about what conditioning I had been living under. What had I believed about myself to be true that wasn't really true? I was really asking myself those deep inner questions. And as I did that, I was also listening to Louise Hay tapes about Heal Your Life. And it was just like, there was some of this thing of spiraling myself upward and getting out of this hole digging my, it was really kind of like digging myself out of a hole that I had been in for so long and just letting myself just unfurl. I felt a little like a plant unfurling. Interesting that you use the term, is this true for me? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of at the core of Byron Katie's work. Mm -hmm. Was she an influencer for you in that regard? Had you known her before that? I hadn't heard of- Interesting that- because that's like her thing. Yeah, I hadn't heard of Byron Katie, but you know, it's funny how so many of these things intersect. But they're universal. Everybody, I was going to say, everybody's yeah. talking universal truth, and universal truth exactly. is what and it you, is. And you just intuited that, yeah. right? And I think one of the things I've found for myself is that a lot of times I've come at things backwards where I would get to some inner truth, or I'd get to some perception of things, and then there I'd find a book about it, or I'd find that, oh, somebody else is doing this. Or, you know, it was, it was such an, it was almost like validation, that what I was experiencing was real because there are oftentimes when you're getting these inner perceptions of things and tr- what I call my inner truth with a capital T, it's like I say, well, where is this really coming from? I mean, how do I know this? And there are times that when I've gotten some deep inner truths that I would, I remember the first time that happened and I, I had been doing some body work temper tantrums in the bed, which had been, this is before I ever left Dallas, and, but my therapist had suggested that I do that and let come out the screams that I needed to let out. Luckily, I was living in a place I could do that. And when I got clarity about what that piece was, and it's like, oh, no, that can't be true. But I felt it was. I stepped down on the floor, and it was the first time that I realized my foot had ever actually contacted the earth. It almost like it was like I was kind of like curling my toes up to keep from being grounded. And so I needed to really realize that that truth was always telling me if I felt grounded, if I felt clear, if I felt clear eyed, if I felt like I could see vivid colors, if I just listened in to what was really the whispers that got louder because I was willing to listen to them. 
that I could trust them. They had really, if I had listened to those, they would have steered me in the right direction. And I realized how often I had overridden those things and had red flags, even about my ex-husband. When I first met him and he opened the door, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. If, now, I would trust that. <laughs> Save me eight years. <laughs> As a negative sign. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, but it's also sometimes for me, it's finding what the, it's almost like clearing away what isn't true to sort it out. Can you give us an example of what some of those things were as you were doing the introspection and you're questioning, you know, is this, is this true for me? And some of the things that were not true, like what would be some examples of that as you were kind of clearing some of that stuff out and letting that, those things go? Well, one of the things is that I couldn't trust my intuition. I didn't even know the term intuition, really. I mean, it, I'd always been, I think I'd lived so much in my head. And when I was still with my ex-husband and we were, at one point, we were looking for a new house to buy. And I think there was every part of me didn't want to buy a new house with him. And I also was starting to be able to tune into energies. And I, it was right at the beginning of that. I didn't, I mean, I knew that I didn't want to live in a particular house, that it had had a lot of violence there. And I said to him, I don't want to live here, even though it looked good on paper and it, you know, physically looked good, but I just couldn't live there. The energy was terrible. It was a foreclosure house and I just felt like it was just bad. And I said to him, you know, I can't live here. And he said, why? And he kept really saying, well, what is it that makes you know that? And I said, I just know it. And that was kind of the first time I acknowledged to myself that I knew things that I knew were true at a deeper level and I couldn't consciously explain it because I'd been so much in my head for so long. Just based off a of feeling. A feeling. Yeah. It was it was the feeling and also my breathing would get clearer. My eyes would get clearer. I would relax in my body. I felt an inner peace and an inner knowing just from going deeper. So you mentioned earlier you talked about truth and you talked about truth with a capital T. And so I would say there's a knowing and then there's a knowing with a capital K. Yes. And the distinction, I think, for our listening audience, because I've experienced the same thing, and when you listen to Eckhart Tolle, in fact, with his recent sort of remake of his New Earth book into the podcast with Oprah, is exactly that, which is the knowing, there's the knowing from the mind, and then there's the knowing from essentially your spiritual side deep within you. And that's the God within each of us. And that's the stuff that really counts. Someone described, and I can't remember who the author is, that intuition is the knowing before we have it in our conscious awareness. And I think that really kind of feels to me like a lot of times when I realize that my head is sort of sometimes lagged behind in being willing to go along and understand especially if it's something big that I know that I really need to change. You know, it's like sometimes I resist it in my head, but I know still as a deeper inner knowing, a spiritual essence of what it is. Right. Because the, the, the mind is a whole nother fascinating topic, but the part of the brain that we use to sort of function in this time space reality and make rational decisions and all those kinds of things, that's the thing that's always slow to catch up because it's only a tool more for survival than really navigating with a capital N. I think also with, that's really well said, that 
we oftentimes, if we're making decisions, I think we have to make decisions with our rationality and our inner knowing. And sometimes there's timing things involved too. But I also think that it can't be just rational alone. And I think that we oftentimes get into feeling like we have to rationally explain it. And sometimes I can't explain it. I'm sometimes better at explaining it now because I've got more access to my inner terrain. And I think that comes from being, you know, kind of an inner inner explorer, that spelunker, being willing to keep on going down and see, wait a minute, is this conditioning, the fear, is this fear-based? Or is this really is this really true for me? Or am I just like parroting what someone else has told me or overlaying with somebody else's life on my life? Or is this, wait a minute, is this what society has said I need to do? And I think that that was kind of what the thing with going to Sedona, where I just sort of like ripped myself out of the day-to-day reality that was what was my plan thing. I left my job a year and a half before I was vested. That's probably a crazy thing to do. And then I also took my retirement money later and published my first book. Other people would say that's not too wise to do, but I knew it was an, I knew from my inner truth that was an investment in my bigger future. Exactly. So Marion, for me, you know, talking about or transitioning into the work that you're actually doing with Heroic Journey Consulting, right? And so you'd mentioned overlaying the story of heroism in your life and how the stories that we tell ourselves, they have such a huge powerful impact right? Can you compare kind of the story that you were telling yourself prior to you overlaying this story of heroism? I can. There was a really clear demarcation for me. Actually, in 1988, when the Power of Myth series, video series with Bill Moyers interviewing Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, I was just sucking it up. I mean, I was seeing those videos over and over and over again. And I was mesmerized by their deep conversation and by Joseph Campbell's stories, very compelling stories he had about mythology and the power of mythology in our lives. And he basically, you know, in his work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he talked about heroism as being the big monomyth that is everybody's life is a mythological heroic journey. And it it had a deep resonance to me, but then I think I kind of set that aside and went on about doing other things in my life. And it wasn't until... You know, I did a lot of the clearing, like I'm saying, when I left Seattle. When I was in Seattle, I met another mythologist named Peter Wallace, who did rites of passage workshops for teenagers. And he had been a school teacher for many years and realized that one of the things that we didn't have for teens was that sense of going into adulthood and that rite of passage. And that it really messes with people a lot of times when they have a poor sense of themselves and don't have clarity and don't have a sense of what they are guided to do as an adult and what's the expectations and how to do that with the support of community around them. So Peter Wallace had workshops on the heroic journey. And then he and I started getting into conversation and did actually an interview for a publication that was in Seattle called New Spirit Journal. It was one of the New Age publications up there. And well, actually, I think it was called New Times then. And I started just interviewing him about it. And because I knew a lot about the heroic journey from really studying Joseph Campbell, I started seeing how this really applied to our personal life. And 
it's like at that point, I think that I started overlaying it on my own life and saying, oh, this really matters. This is a living myth. This is not something that's old stories. It's not fantasy movies. Like right now, it seems like so many people are into fantasy movies and living through vicariously through the, you know, characters in the story. But it's, we are the story. It is our story. It is, we are the central character in our own story. And it is an unfolding story that if we allow it to be a sense of heroism, that draws all of our experiences into what I call a sacred container that helps bring all those pieces, the threads of existence, the things that we've done, the experiences we have, the traumas we've experienced, the great things, the childhood experiences, everything. It just pours it all into a container that allows us to have a, a way to process the information and to see that our life matters and that our past can be very informational, but it's not setting our future. It doesn't have to be our future. I really love that. I mean, because by doing that, by making that shift, you you definitely look at your life in, in a different way. Because you talk about the transformational mindset and that this is a commitment that you have to make. And that really, what really stood out to me on your website was you you have to look at the challenges that you face as necessary elements right for this for this journey and i thought about that and it's just by making that little shift it could change your entire life i think that that's really key because when we see a challenge we faced as a story element in our unfolding story it gives us the ability to see that we have choices it's not just something that we are just you know, I think we can live an unconscious life and just be sort of pulled along unconsciously and live out a story that somebody else has given to us or that we thought that we need to live or that we have just a certain lot in life and that's all we can do and that we're just stuck. And what I love about the heroic journey is it says, no, your life is unfolding and you have the ability to change not necessarily what has happened, but the meaning of what has happened. It's the meaning that is what makes the difference between something that is a tragedy versus a heroic story. And I love the fact that you you brought up how a lot of people gravitate to say movies, right? And and they kind of they live out this heroic journey through watching movies, right? And and a movie that definitely resonates with me as I as I was thinking about what you were saying is Braveheart, the story of yes. William Wallace, right? And I think the reason we gravitate to and we watch those stories or those movies with the with with these heroes is there is something deep within us that makes that connection. But we also have to realize that, you know, there's a story that we have to live out ourselves, right? And this is I think that's what you're talking about, this heroic journey that each individual has to live out, right? One of the things I, I liked, two two authors that I just think of that really have struck me, one is Annette Simmons, and she talks, she's a great storyteller, and she talks about storytelling is the DNA of all meaning. It's deeply embedded in our human psyche. And the other one is Maya Angelou, and she talks about there is no greater agony than to bear an untold story within and I just think that's where people get stuck is like they get stuck in this almost like one foot nailed to the ground, just going round and round in the same circle of thinking, 
my life is miserable. And I know because I've done, I mean, I've been there and I know how hard it is to get out of, you know, the place of being kind of like going down the drain and kind of clawing yourself up to realize that's not true. And having to stop that part of the mindset that has been saying certain things to us and, and, and look at it. So wait a minute, I have the power to transform this experience. That's the transformational joy and the freedom that comes from being able to realize that you may not have control over everything in your life, but you certainly have control over your perception of it. So a question for you on this heroic journey framework and model, because as I'm listening to you share your own story and even the whole concept behind Joseph Campbell's work, what's emerging for me is like a path, a path for individuals to sort of get outside of themselves. And so what I want to explore a little bit from an articulation standpoint, when you are able to see your own life in the context of heroic journey, and I totally get that when we're aware of something, like I think one of the most powerful experiences I've had with Byron Katie's work in self-examining my life and my choices in life and my thinking behind those choices and asking that question, is that really true? I'm doing it for this reason, but is that really true? And is that really true for me? Because maybe it's true for others and then you sort of start understanding how one thinks and how one approaches life could very well be sort of an embedded programming from peers, from past lifetimes, wherever. The point being is that when you can see it, you can remove yourself sort of from it being a personal thing and realize if it's not true, then what's my choice to believe now? And when we have choice, the world becomes literally free. Anything and everything is game. And reinforcing that, I don't know if we talked about the channel text's work from Paul Selig. Are you familiar with Paul Selig? No. no. Do you know Jane Roberts? No, I don't know oh. Jane Roberts either. Okay, so Jane Roberts, I think, was one of the early, shall we say, publishers of what were sort of spirit guides speaking through her. Oh, she was a channel. She was a channel. Oh, of course, yes. That uh, Jane many Roberts. years ago. Yes, yeah, it was in the yes, 50s. Yes. yes, yes. And hers was like the first published public work at a mass scale. And so that work continues in the world, probably all over the world. Recently in the US, I say recently, probably now about 10 years ago if, or thereabouts, I think it was in 2009, a gentleman from New York, Paul Selig, who was a, I think, theater teacher at New York University or some small school in New York, a playwright, et cetera, had this moment where he became a channel for these spirit guides. What's really interesting is, and I've listened to two of his first books numerous times, and there's a common theme. And the common theme is that everything in life is choice, everything. So when we take a step back and look at that. So in light of that, how would you describe the bridge or, well, two things. I picture a bridge that's going from sort of this life that is untold, that is kept within 
of which there's immense suffering and this constant cycle of struggle and suffering, essentially bondage, for lack of a better term, and then being aware of that, and then sort of moving out of that bondage and into freedom. How would you describe the bridge and the building of the bridge, number one? And you've talked about it, but let's kind of like blow that out a little bit more. And then how do you articulate as we cross the bridge, what's the result? What's this new world that we're actually stepping into? And what's the the impact, the consequence, the actual manifestation of the evolution that's happening? How would you articulate that from your own experience? Well, I look at it using the seven circuit labyrinth. If you look at the seven circuit labyrinth, it's often used in mythology and it has been all over the world. It's an archetypal figure. And the thing that I love about that is that it is what's called a unicursal path. It has one path, one path in, you arrive at the center, you wind out, and you come back out the same path you went in. It's different from a maze, you know, and that became popular in the 1500s, you know, hedge mazes and things where you could get lost and had twists and turns in life. But when we look at that, if we see ourselves on a heroic journey, there's one path. It's stepping, the first step you take is into the labyrinth and it winds in and it winds out, just mirroring almost like what our brain does, winds in, winds out. And it gets us in a contemplative way as we wind in, it allows us to shed our misperceptions, shed what no longer serves us. It sort of represents the peeling away of everything that is not truth, that is not our true path, that is not our own perception that we have been conditioned by. It's a continuing to throw off that which no longer serves us as we get to the center of the labyrinth. That's where we claim our wisdom. We stand there in the light of presence and knowing and allow ourselves to be infused with all the energy and the flow of life that is and perception that's coming through us from our divine source, from God, whatever we choose and to look at that, how we choose to look at it. But it's a way of getting more in the vertical. It brings us into alignment in a vertical way, almost like an internal gyroscope, helps us right ourselves as we have gotten rid of all the dead weight off of us that has held us out of sync, has made us go wobbly and out of sync. And then as we get that purity of clarity and wisdom, we know that we can take that back out into the world with ourselves, but from a transformed state, because we've gone through something that is not of this world. And we can then wind back out and reinvent ourselves from inside out so that then we can operate in the world from a greater perspective, from our inner things that we have learned along the way, and contribute to society in a greater way than we possibly could have when we were trying to just figure out who we were and peeling away everything else. So all of those parts of it, to me, are really important in the transformational process. And once we have gotten that sense of winding outward in our lives, we naturally want to connect with the world in a different way. And we want to share what we learned because it's so profound. 
That is the sense of inner freedom that we can live day by day, moment by moment, everything we do. Wow. Exactly. That's cool. That's very cool. Is this your actual system with the heroic journey that you work with clients on? Is this labyrinth model, if you will? I do. And what I do is I meet people in the mentoring I do. I meet people where they are because everybody has their own first step they need to take and what they are learning individually. So I may not always talk about it in these terms, but I always have this frame of reference in mind as I'm helping people work with their soul and getting in synchronicity with their soul and helping themselves mature as human beings. So I may call it different things for different people. Like for some, some per, one person, I would call it the divine presence. For another person, what does your soulful self say? I call it for myself, my wise one. It just depends on what people have in their own resonance, but I try to meet them where they are, and always that is in mind with what do we need to peel away? What do we need to claim? What do we need to own? How do we need to stand in our truth? Because it's actually, to me, about finding our own value in society and feeling a sense of our own sense of power, are we giving away our power to other people? Are we owning our own power? And do we feel enough? Do we have a sense of our own fullness of being? And I think a lot of times it's having to have self-compassion and trying to fill our cup with enoughness. What is so fascinating to me as we talked offline yesterday before we went into the interview is how you're in the world doing your work. We're in the world doing our work. We're really trying to really help people get to the same place, but we're using different methods, we're using different frameworks, we're using different language, because everyone does resonate differently when it comes to structure framework and language. And so I'm curious within the context of your work, what's the general timeline when you bring a person to the door you know what this reminds me? I'm going to segue off of something, which is my way. I've got to do this at least once a podcast. I've got to get off on a little tangent. It's my way. It's my thing. <laughs> but as you're sharing this, and you will probably relate to this more than my dear colleague on my right, Led Zeppelin's song, In Through the Outdoor, okay, sort of conceptually reminds me a little bit of this, where your, your entry point you go through, you hit this center, and you transform, and you come right back through the same door you entered, but you are not the same person. Right. How long does that generally take for people? Like, what's the, I know that's like a ridiculous, <laughs> well, on some level, ridiculous question, but, you know, we're trying to articulate this in our own work. At least my thing, and Aries has his thing, but my thing kind of is this, who are you and why are you here? These are the questions that you need to answer for yourself. I don't know, but I'll take you through a process that can help. And yours is another process that can help get them there. And Aries kind of has his way of, of getting people there. So can you bring some real life experience to the audience with your own clients and their experience going through this and what you've seen and sort of what that, again, I, I don't want to say like, what's the timeline? Sounds a little bit too mechanical because obviously it's different for everybody, but Share a little bit about the experience, if you would. Well, I think one of the things I, I've talked about is the, 
you know, while we go kind of clockwise in our physical time, I've depicted it in the heroic journey. And I know Joseph Campbell talked about this, the counterclockwise movement that's, I think, mythological time. And mythological time is not tied to earth time in a concrete way. But there is a definite resonance when you know, I know when I'm working with somebody, if they are really ready to go in, continue working, you know, going deeper, or whether it's just really that it's, that they're, that they're not really wanting to do that kind of deep dive because it's a scary thing to do. And so sometimes, of course, the payoff is great, but when people don't know it right away, they resist. We all have places of resistance. So I say it's mythological time in the sense that, you know, um, there's units of time that I can see within each person almost to their own rhythm that are true for them. And maybe you need to take real baby steps with certain people where they are in their process. Sometimes it may just be helping them ground and feel a sense of their own internal gyroscope. Sometimes it may be actually being able to really dive down deeply with people who have been willing to do some measure of introspection already, have a lot of that introspection. And to me, it's almost like getting to the root of an issue. This is where I feel like the intuitive investigation, you know, it's almost being the, like playing detective. It's like, okay, now, oh, so that's the logic within you that has created this block, energy block or resistance to something and just really trying to work with that piece. And sometimes it takes a really long time and it takes years. I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily a therapist, so I don't really look at it that way, but I, I can feel inside with somebody whether they are really willing to go and dive down or whether you kind of like, okay, that's as much as they can take right now and they need to go off and process and think about it and do it in their own time frame. Okay, that helps. So there really is, that probably wasn't really a fair question, but here is a fair question. <laughs> For you personally, your crisis time in Texas, mm -hmm. your step out into Sedona, your move to Seattle, remarriage, and sort of landing where you want now your work in the world to be. Because you you went from, you were an attorney general in Texas. Yeah, an investigator. Investigator. You worked for the attorney general's office as well in Washington, correct? I did consulting work for them. I never okay, actually never worked. Actually, my husband worked yeah, for them. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. I thought maybe you were also. Mm -hmm. But so how would you frame the time for you in years Earth time mm -hmm. <laughs> that began the process of entering the door, and then the time where you felt you actually exited the door. Is that a fair sort of descriptor yeah, of that path? I can see what you're saying. I well, okay. I think that when I married, I was 25, yeah. so I felt like I thought at the time I was a really, you know, kind of together adult. I was doing the adulting things, a job and you know, going to school, going, doing job and everything. So that was the first part of it. I think the seven years that I did the introspection during the time I was married and I, you know, eight, seven, eight years in there where that was really diving down and just, I mean, kind of almost like deconstructing myself, I would say, you know, the deconstruction process where I say the, you know, I see it as the you know, the winding inward on the journey where I'm stripping away. And the great aha was in, actually in one instant, in one, in some ways, but has continued to have other ramifications. Well, it was like your first aha. That was like a first aha. That was the cliffhanging? That was the cliffhanging. Right. Where I was so that just was like, your first aha that now yes. 
to me, yeah. So when I sort of visualize this path, mm-hmm. I see everything leading up to the cliff. Mm-hmm. I almost see the cliff as the door. Mm-hmm. It was. It was actually you the were letting at, go. You were actually at the door. Yes. Through the suffering. Mm-hmm. But the cliff was like the opening. Yes, it was. And then you were able to like let go. Let of go. That and now somehow move forward. Right. Okay. So from that point mm-hmm. to where you came out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting you say it when I came out, because I think that I started coming out almost immediately after the first time of the aha moment of the cliff. And there were also many other turns because different parts of ourselves are synchronizing in different ways. So, I mean, I was continuing to strip things away. And of course, then when I got in a relationship, then that was a whole other thing of, I tried to do as much clearing as I could before I got together with, with Richard, but I mean, poor guy, he's had to suffer all the things of me having to, you know, clear even more. And yeah. he's been, he's been really helpful with that. So the, so the relationship part been a good of that, partner for you for that. Yeah. He's absolutely well, been. By design. Been, oh yes, absolutely. Yes. We've been really good for one another, helping one another, you know, step forward at each time. And we eat one, whoever's needed the help yes. for the other, which is the way it should be. That's the right. way I always thought it was going to be in relationship. So from that standpoint, relationship wise, I think that I continued another time period in there. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's seven year cycles for me. I, I, you know, in terms of time frame, I, seven years to deconstruct and seven, you know, it's like great aha moments and then seven years to reconstruct on different levels. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can see that's one way of viewing it. Yeah. I think that for me now, when I look at where I am on my path, there's always going to be elements of me that are going and using this inward process, arriving at center and, and you'll winding continue out. To I will until the yeah. day I die. For sure. All of us are that. But I think that generally when I look at where my life is, I retired about four years ago from my work. I'd worked at the city of San Diego for about 14 and a half years in communication and change management. And I think during, there, each phase has had, since I was in Seattle and I started my business there, I started things, then we left and went on the road and traveled. And then when we ended up here in San Diego, I did a lot of different kind of jobs. And I think that I was learning things in the high tech field. I was learning things in business. I learned things in a nonprofit sector. I learned things educationally, how to put educational programs together when I work for a servant leadership organization. And then with the city, I worked in all these different departments. So I got to work with in the middle of the energy crisis. I said it was a little like the Forrest Gump. I got to see all these things and be a participant in that front row slot uh, when the city went through SEC investigations and change in strong mayor form of government. I learned a tremendous amount about government and leadership. Who was really the leader? Who were really the leaders who really stood up and really led from a servant leadership basis and who crumbled? It was fascinating to be a, have a ringside oh, seat to that. And then working with planning, city planning during the 30-year plan so I got a chance to be in the community and see how all the, the areas where people live really affect them deeply. And I was helping be a part of that change system to have to work an entire culture in the city for what we wanted to be when we grew up as a city. Right. And then I also worked in the library where we opened the new central library. So I got to be part of that whole cultural change process, almost like lifting people up from being in an old library that was really outmoded that had been there since 1954 and moving to a brand new facility in 2013. And the change that that has brought about, a transformational process that people didn't even know how transformative that was going to be by having that kind of a hub 
where people from all kinds of backgrounds could come together in such an amazing facility. So it, it's the, the, the medium that working with groups has helped me learn. And so now I feel like I've taken it for myself from the personal level through to the organizational level. And now where I am is sort of working to implement it at a global level. And that's why my online learning with Heroic Transformation and the work that I'm doing through the Ryan Eliason course in this next year to uh, help that unfold in a greater way. Okay, cool. So really, one can summarize what you're referring to and what you're explaining in the following context. That really, at the core, if you, if you had to say, what are the greatest catalysts in our growth? What are the things that we create for ourselves in order to grow and evolve? It's clearly at the relationship level. Okay, we could not get any of this sitting in a cave all by ourselves. And so I think what's really interesting is that you have the dynamic of like a marriage, and that's like a deeper one-on-one, which can do all kinds of things in your first marriage. And an example in your second, I mean, you know, one was to essentially turn you upside down. The other one was to actually support you in getting right, okay, and continues to be that and feeds your soul. But then there's also this group dynamic. And where do we find the group dynamic primarily? It's in the workplace, where we have this assemblance of people and a collective consciousness and all these interworking relationships. And that's like the marriage thing on steroids. If you are allowing it to be that way and seeing the challenges that we all face in these group relationship constructs. And from there, we can, again, if we can pull ourselves out of it, not take these things personally, but realize these things are created to help me grow through things. And when we go from one experience to another, which you've had in your career, I've had in my career, very diverse experience, which now I'm realizing was also created for the very benefit of helping me better understand and better use tools and my own experience, my own wisdom as a result of that collective experience and bring it out into the world in some way to simply help people understand for themselves what's going on, what's really going on here. And we can either seize that by choice and say, wow, this is my challenge. So what's happening for me here? What are my soul's requirements in this situation? What am I to learn? But just asking those questions, this is the whole thing that really amazes me. In terms of our spiritual being existence in a human body in this time-space reality is that when we simply ask, just like the Abraham Hicks book, ask and it's given, you know, it's like, I'm thinking of it always in terms of, oh yeah, ask for that new car and it's given or ask for that (laughs) dream home and it's given. No, no, it's these kind of questions. What's true for me here? And lo and behold, it will come to you. You just got to be listening. Yes. That's the whole key. That's why you got to get enough of us out of ourselves and our ego out of the way to be able to be good listeners. Right. And that's another big part of this growth and evolution. What kind of reminded me what you were saying too, that I look at it as life is sort of the heroic training ground to see, you know, we come in as loving beings, just raw love. And then we get all the shocks of being alive. And where we bump up next to one another, we, you know, there's so much that we have to learn from the hard knocks of life. 
And yet, how do we come back to ourselves of being the loving person that we knew that we were when we came in, but doing it in a way, having gone through those hard knocks, that we have more self-compassion and more compassion for others. And that it's like our heroic training ground. I really see that. It's like everything, every encounter we have, the relationships that we have, especially the ones that we don't like and (laughs) are hard for us, those can be the ones that trigger us to go deeper within. And, you know, that's why to me, it's like learning how to relate from the center of myself, to lead from the center of myself, to be in the world in wherever I am from that central place within, from that inner gyroscope, so that I am becoming a more mature human being and being able to prove to myself from inside out that this stuff is possible. And I think working in all these different environments and bumping up against so many different people with so many different issues makes me know it is possible. And we are doing it. And we're doing it in micro levels on a day-to-day basis. And when we, I think we're also doing it at a macro level. And it's right now we're going through hard times in our culture. But I also know that it's not black and white. There's not an either or. And that's the whole thing of choice when we get to a place that we say, ah, we're not just like in tribes and, you know, like segmented into tribes. There, we are humans underneath. There is a common humanity and we are all wanting underneath it all the same things. And it's finding those common grounds. So kind of moving into this last phase of our podcast here, we've talked about the heroic journey and you've kind of deconstructed that brilliantly. There's another part to your work that I want to touch on, if I may, which is this heroic narrative to help people sort of transform. And it's definitely tied to the heroic journey. But tell us a little bit about your latest ebook talking about this transformation and how this, again, relates to the heroic journey and how it complements the work that you're doing. It's really hot off the e-press. And <laughs> it's from trauma to triumph. And it's Create a heroic narrative to set your transformation in motion. It's a lot about what we have been talking about already in the sense that I think that whatever techniques that we have for growth, techniques that we have to try to help people on, you know, whatever path and techniques and methods we have to help people with their life, putting a story around it, to me, helps bring that sacred container to their life so that then they can say, oh, okay, now I see how my, you know, desire to have a better family structure really makes makes more sense. How can I be, like I know Ari, you is saying in your podcast about wanting to be a better husband and father, and how that is so key for you and who you want to become and who you are dedicated to now and be, being as a human being. So when we look at it from, you know, everybody's heroic journey and putting that as a template, you know, then it's like, what's your story as it unfolds? And I know you've done a lot of work with that, like the kinder work that you do, Mark, is really all about helping people hone that and figure out what do you want and so that you can actually have the intention to go, I mean, to figure out where you want to go by knowing what your intention is and how you want to, how do you want to do it? So the heroic journey to me is just something that can be added into any already existing method or, or tools that we have because we're all we're all basically doing, you know, it's just a different entry point that we're using to enter into this inner process anyway. Exactly. And using different tools right. to help facilitate and enable our clients 
to discover for themselves yes. who they are and why they're here. Yes. So a quick question in terms of this particular transformational work. In your book, you talk about chapter five about writing your story of transformation. And so do you actually encourage your clients to actually write? Literally write? Is it literally yes. writing a story? Yes. Okay. And, you know, I, I'll talk, sometimes people can take it only in small nuggets. So I'll say, well, maybe you need to just write about this, this part of what you're talking, you know, what is it you're going through? You know, a lot of times too, there's so many different parts of ourselves that, you know, we're not all just one thing. So I see there's like, for me, the inner critic who is very hard on myself. Well, okay, how do I evolve that inner critic? So I have her, you know, it's like, I, I look at what's the story of the inner critic. And it's like, well, I'm trying to help you be a better person. It's like, okay, well, you need to, you know, help me to, uh, you need to be softer on me sometimes because you're too hard and it's not helping and it's really hurting me instead. It's like, oh, okay, well, the gift I have though underneath that is that I'm going to help you to be a better person. I'm dedicated to that. It's like, okay, but can you coach me along or can you do something? Okay, I'll be the coach instead and I'll know when to be hard on you and when not to be. That's a little mini story that we tell ourselves. But to me, it's like when I, we bring all of our inner characters in ourselves into our own story, I have people write about that one little nugget or they've had a particularly traumatic experience. So um, I'll ask them to go off, you know, they'll, they'll say they want to go off and write a poem about it. And I said, that's a great idea. Put that poem so you can start compiling those pieces for your bigger story. So it may just be a story nugget that is what somebody needs to write about right then. But there is something very powerful about the writing process to being able to put it down on paper in a way that you see it more as your own detached observer so that then you can see the both end of both being an integral participant, but also the detached observer who can look at it in a dispassionate way and say, oh, here's how I need to move the dial a little so that I'm dialing it in to be more authentic with somebody. Or here's how I need to do, it's like, oh, I really did a lousy job when I you know, when I said that to so-and-so, I shouldn't have said it that way, and I need to go apologize. You know, there's different ways that we know how we need to dial it in and do it, but I think this, doing a little mini story for ourselves sometimes can really be helpful to clarify it, and it also embeds it deeper in our thought process because we remember it. I think what the story does is it, it brings the awareness, right, of these certain parts of our story that, that cause us or created the suffering, the anger, the depression, the anxiety, those things. But by putting it on paper, like you'd mentioned, you could take a step back and see, okay, this is why I feel this way. And then kind of knowing how to, how to get past that too. That's very interesting. It brings us more aliveness too. I think that's really key because it's also a sense of feeling alive, fully alive. Because I think so many times, sometimes we'll get, feel like we're in shock and we just feel numbed out or we just can't process things. I know I've been that sort of like deer in the headlights sometimes and I can't process it. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, what's really going on here? And if I can tell myself what's really happening in a story form, it helps me to realize it's like, oh, that's why it shocked me so much. That reminded me of such and such that was so traumatic before. And this isn't the same situation and you don't have to be so scared about that because this is different now. I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. You didn't have that when you were a child, but you do have me now. So it can help in the storytelling of what, you know, in, in helping bring up that, that inner child that may be in, you know, cowering in fear in a corner somewhere and say, come with me, I'll take you on this journey. I've got you, I've got you back. I've got your, you know, you're in my heart always. And that in itself is a great little story we can tell to ourselves to help that inner child 
know that they're safe with us and that they can trust us to take them where we're going to go. Mark and I, we had an, an episode that we did on well-being. And, you know, when I look at despair, anger, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, I mean, there's a lot of people that are going through that in the world right now. How does someone that's going through that, and obviously with your with your past experiences being being in a place where you felt that way, right? In in that in that first marriage, that past relationship, how does someone find hope in the midst of all that to be able to take steps in the in the right direction to transform? Well, I think one of the things sometimes just having knowing that there's somebody else who has gone through it. You know, like we've gone through our things and we're each wanting to help other people so they don't have to go through as hard a time. I think that in itself, just being able to sort of like reach a hand to somebody who feels like they're in the rubble and say, come up, come up, I'm here for you and helping them. I've been there before. And I've been there before and I know where you're coming from and you don't, and it's not something, this is not permanent. This is not permanent. You can't, you know, you are going to make it through. And sometimes you have to just give people that hope because, I mean, they have to do it, act on blind faith in some ways to know that they can possibly do it because somebody else has gone before them who has who has done it too and some and having the support i think it's really key when somebody's really in that place that they reach out for support and that's oftentimes when we don't want to reach out i know i would like with for me when i said i was too embarrassed to even tell friends and family it turned out once i said what was going on they all knew anyway they were just waiting for me to come and reach out and they were there when i reached out but it was having to make that first step. That's the taking the first step into the labyrinth and saying, I'm willing to get help and support along the journey. And that we don't have to do it all alone. We've all done it. We've all, you know, this this human road has been, the path is well beaten. And many others have gone before us. And there are others who can help us along the way. We don't have to do it alone. We're not, we're not in isolation. And I think that's also a lot of it. People are feeling very disconnected. They're disconnected from themselves. They're disconnected from meaningful work. They're disconnected from the environment. Just a a huge sense of despair from the disconnection. And so it's a lot of this is helping people reconnect to their own life and and bring themselves back alive again out of the deadened space. And and we could do that by connecting with others. Yes. Back to relationship, right? Because I I think that's such a a big thing in regards to hope. We find hope in other people that have gone through it and hearing their stories. I think that's that's that is so big because you can't you can't get out of that that hole that you again, you're the reason you're in that hole is cuz you dug that hole for yourself. <laughs> really deep. Right? <laughs> yes. And if if you try to if you try to get out of there on your own, more than likely you're probably stay in the same place if not dig yourself in a deeper hole that you need to connect with somebody else. You need to find help. You know, so for those of you out there that are listening to this that are feeling some sort of despair, anger, anxiety, or depression, we'd encourage you to, to reach out to somebody and find help because there's somebody that has been through it, that has gone out of it, and has some valuable life experience to share with you to, to be able to help you along your path as well. Yeah. And groups are so important too. I got so much value out of doing the small groups when I was first in therapy. And I remember hearing one woman who was farther along on the path than I was, and she said, oh, she says, last night I I put my little girl on my lap, and I told her I love her, and I gave her a big hug, and she was so happy. And I thought, I want to do that. You know, it didn't occur to me to use that. And it was only in hearing her tell that in her story that I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do for myself, too. 
So it was the stories of others and their experience and people who are maybe even just a little bit farther along on the path, but that helps to bring you out. All you have to do is take one step. And that first step sometimes is just saying, I want to reach out and I want the help. I think about the heroic journey and the fact that each and every single one of us, whether we believe it or not, you know, can rewrite our own, our own story. But the story is so much better when there's other people involved, right? Like when you watch movies, I mean, okay, I mean, you could be a hero and, and you could watch a movie that with a hero who's kind of on this journey on his own. But then when, when you compare that to other movies or other stories when it's not just a hero, but, you know, he's with other people and they're, they're doing something together, it's, to me, it's just, it's more meaningful. Like there's just something about it. A shared story. Yeah, a shared story, correct. It, you know, that's like a, you, th- you see that in, you know, people who have served together in the military and how they've had that shared story that, that others may not understand, but they know, you know, they, people band together or just, you know, in the workplace. I saw this all the time. Is what, one of the things is helping people in the workplace. I've done some workshops with small groups where like a group of people who had, were doing social work in a, for a government setting and they had been together for years. This group knew one another really well. But one of the things we did was had them talk about their individual stories and say, people would say, I didn't know that about you. And they talked about their own struggles and how that had drawn drawn them to the social work and that that bonded them even more closely together. And then on talking about the shared story of what is it that your organization is creating that's a separate story that's kind of in the middle of the table from all the different people. And I say, you're bringing an element, you are bringing an element. And how does that create that shared story? That's so important for us to bond to because we are, by nature, social creatures. We want that, you know, we're sentient beings that need to have connection beyond ourselves. And this is the power of the story is, is it's, it's expandable for a personal journey and a collective journey. Thank you for sharing. Very good. Aries, any final thoughts, questions for Marion before we kind of move into some of our traditional closing questions. I don't have any specific questions. Just really enjoyed hearing your story, Marion. For those of you out there, I would encourage you to check out her website. It's heroicjourney.com. Upon exploring your website, I came across a, a self-evaluation, I guess, PDF or questionnaire that you have on there. I'm really looking forward to, to doing that and seeing what, what comes out of that for myself. But you know, thank you again for just being on the podcast. and really enjoyed our time together today. This is great. I really enjoyed our conversation. I knew it would be a great one hearing your stories. Yes, indeed. And it has been wonderful. So in closing, a couple questions for you. Imagine for the moment that your 19 to 20-year-old self is sitting in front of your current self. And if you had one thing to share, what would that be with your 19 to 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now? Your hard knocks that you will go through are going to all be worth it because this is going to be your life path and your work to do in the world. Excellent. And three words that describe you as a change maker in the world. Oh, passionate, curious and hopeful. Nice. On that note, passionate, curious, hope. Those three words, if those three words resonate with you, 
you know who to call. <laughs> <laughs> Marion, it was really a pleasure. And as always, all of the references to other people and their work, along with Marion's work, will be in the show notes and the resource section. So you'll have plenty to look at and take a deeper dive into heroic journey work. And I think that will wrap it up for today. Well, thank you, Mark and Ari. This has been incredible. Really appreciated the opportunity to be with you today and to connect with your audience. And I know that they're on a great path for happiness and freedom just by connecting with you and all the work that you're doing. That is the plan and the hope as well. So thanks again. And until our next podcast, all the best to our listening audience, health, wealth, and happiness to all. Some of the concepts and tools used in the process of helping you discover a more balanced and inspired life are provided by the Kinder Institute, Money Quotient, and The Strategic Coach. These may be referenced throughout different episodes of the podcast, and you can learn more about each of them in our show notes at hwph.org. You can also find more information about the work Mark and Aries do at sandiegowealth.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and available directly via email with feedback, questions, and more at us at hwph.org. Thank you all for listening.